2022 National Director of the Journey for Justice Alliance. Appreciate y'all being here. I'm your host for the On the Ground podcast. You can reach us on Twitter at J4J underscore USA. You can also reach us on our Facebook page, Journey for Justice Alliance. And finally, this podcast is for those that believe, those that are ready to do the work, ready to conversate, not demonstrate. Let's go. Abarigani, Jumbo, Otep, peace. What's happening? And what up, dope? Once again, this is your man, Brother G2, here with the On the Ground podcast, the show that examines the artistic science of community organizing. We really appreciate all the support you've been giving us, and we really appreciate the fact that you all see value in the lived experiences of the people that we've brought forward. Once again, my name is Brother G2, longtime community organizer, and also the national director of the group, The Journey for Justice Alliance, which is a network of grassroots community-based organizations in over 30 cities around the country committed to equity in public education. But when we do on the ground, we don't just focus on education. We've talked about a myriad of subjects. Some of you all have talked about how much you've dug the episode on rent control. And so uh, while we will deal with education like we are tonight, every week it won't be the same. We'll make sure to keep feeding your spirit and make sure that we'll bring subjects to you that are things that are happening in our neighborhood. So again, I appreciate you all and welcome to the podcast. The theme of our show tonight is Mama Said Knock You Out. And y'all know who made that song, A Ladies Love Cool James, LL Cool J. And this group of women that we're going to talk to tonight personify that. These are organizers from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. There's a lot of great organizing jumping off in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And we're going to talk to three sisters tonight. Angel Goldberg, the Director of Education Justice for One Pennsylvania. Miss Paulette Foster co-founder of the Education Rights Network and board member of One Pennsylvania, and Susie South, visual organizer for One PA. You should be interested because they are one of the few cities in the United States that actually kick out Teach for America. Maybe the theme of this show should be uh, NWA's Gangsta Gangsta. I don't know. But these sisters are doing great work. But before we get to my sisters in Pittsburgh, we want to do our member spotlight. Every week we salute a group in the Journey for Justice Alliance for the work that they're doing. Why do we do that? Because everything we see teaches us that we can't win. This society that's driven off white supremacy works very hard to snatch the hope away from us, to make you feel like changing our communities is an insurmountable task. So we want to make sure you all know that there are people out there that are organizing, that are fighting, and are winning. Now, this group is called the Legenia Burns Hope Center. This is on the south side of Chicago, in the western part of the Bronzeville community. The director of this group is my brother, Roderick Wilson. This particular group was actually co-founded by our former president, Barack Obama, for maybe the 30 minutes that he did community organizing work. And they do incredible work in the Virginia Burns Hope Center. They have done work to preserve affordable housing. They have an affordable home ownership program. They believe in democratic governance and public education. So they are standing with us in the fight for an elected representative school board. And they actually do trainings of local school councils. Chicago is very unique. Now, we have an appointed school board, which is bogus, right? But at each school, we have what we call local school councils. They are publicly elected. The largest base of grassroots elected officials in the world. There are over 6,000 LSE members throughout the city of Chicago. At each school, you get six parents, two community reps, two teachers, 
a school staff person, the principal, and at the high school, a student. And they're publicly elected. If need be, they can remove the principal. They approve the school budget. They monitor the budget. They help develop the school improvement plan. And now with the Virginia Burns Hope Center, they are like the epicenter of community-based training for local school councils in the city of Chicago. Making sure that at the local level, we have local decision-making and parents and communities are involved in that decision-making. But they also do police accountability work and they are part of the tip of the spear in the fight for rent control in the state of Illinois. They are small, but they are mighty. And I want to just say salute to the Virginia Burns Hope Center. So now that we have done our member spotlight, I am ready to introduce our guests. Again, the theme of this show is Mama Said Knock You Out. And so I'm going to ask our ladies, starting with Miss Paulette, and then we'll have Susie. And then last and definitely not least, because I don't want to make her angry, Angel Goldberg, Director of Education at <laughs> PA. So could you all please introduce yourselves, say what you do and why you do it. Hello, my name is Miss Paulette. I am part of 1PA and I am the co-founder of Education Rights Network. And the goal of our organization is to inform parents of students with disabilities that they have rights when it comes to their children receiving services within the district. My co-founder, Pam Harbin, is now in the process of taking on another challenge of running for school board. So we are standing strong behind her. But with that being shared, the vision of Education Rights Network was always to make sure that the parents of mm -hmm. students with disabilities are informed and that they don't feel as if they're second-class citizens. Absolutely. And that's how I became involved with Education Rights Network as a co-founder, finding out all this information that our children are being left out of a lot of critical planning mm -hmm. when the district does what it does for the school. So that's who... I represent, and that's who we try to make sure that is well-informed mm -hmm. when it comes to our babies who are already in a struggle with mm -hmm. an exceptionality, and now they have to contend with not being respected or looked at properly within the school. So that's what I do, apart with Education Rights Network, with along with 1PA. So 1PA yes, is just fantastic. <laughs> yes, ma'am. And so are you, Ms. Foster. I, I really appreciate your Thank spirit you. and the work that you do. Now, Ms. Susie, please introduce yourself, say what you do and why you do it. I am the visual organizer at One Pennsylvania. And that means that I am here to really make the incredible organizing and community work we're doing with our members shine. Mm. That could be anything from doing art builds in the street. Mm. You know, this year we, we actually had the school police propose to have guns, for example, and we built an entire funeral in front of the school board that night. So we built a coffin and we had flowers. And so it could be anything from a three-dimensional art build like that, all the way to graphic design, kind of traditional social media organizing. And basically, honestly, you know, I am self-taught and um, Angel, mm. who you're going to hear from in a second, I came on as an organizer with her she and I just had such a strong vision together about what our stuff should look like. 
we used to joke that the stuff that people were making for us looked a little like dental brochures and that's not who we were. <laughs> so, um, and I think that that's something we have in common, you know, Ms. Paulette and the members of 1PA and of Education Rights Network. We're the kind of people that are going to take the wheel and mm. take the mic when it's not going right. I heard that. So, that, so that's the work I do in terms of how I got here. Again, like our members and like our organizers, I'm a person who has been impacted by the kind of issues that, you know, we work on now. Um, in high school, I was in foster care in California, in the Bay Area, in group homes, and I was out as queer. And so I got involved in those two worlds doing advocacy. And then after that, got involved with prison justice as a younger adult. And um, I learned a lot of lessons in those worlds and I'm mm. really grateful to work in a circle of people that have the voices of whoever's most impacted, mm-hmm. we put that at the front of the room. So that's where I come from. And I'm grateful to be here with you. Oh, I'm honored. Absolutely. So quick question. Who developed those cards that you all put together of different people in the struggle? It was the brother who was a, like a labor organizer in Pittsburgh. You all gave me a bunch of them when I came to Pittsburgh and I still have them on my wall today. Oh, that's wonderful. As we know, our schools don't tell our stories of freedom fighters. That's right. And so we wanted to keep that story going forward. So we picked 10 of them and made these Justice Ancestor stickers. So Mm -hmm. um, that's what we gave you and shared with you. And um, that's part of our storytelling process. It probably costs $2 to make the big old giant ones. And that's something we like to share and continue Mm -hmm. on. So that's the story. They were once upon a time in a march. (laughs) And last but not least, Angel Gober, please introduce yourself, say what you do and why you do it. So my name is Angel Gober and I live here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. I am the director of education justice. I have a 17 year old and mama is going to knock you out is absolutely appropriate when thinking about my 17 year old. Oh my God. <laughs> so... You know, you better stop um, before children and family services listen to this show. Come on now. Come on now. My goodness. Come on now. Listen, until you raise, you know, a 17 year old Taurus, and her mama's also a Taurus, then we can have this conversation. But until then, I will uh, continue to make sure I keep her together. So, yeah, my daughter's a, a senior here in Barack Obama Academy, right here on the east end of Pittsburgh. And I've been in the organizing world for about 15 years. I started out doing housing justice, which is a very hard topic and very difficult to organize around low-income housing issues. And so, you know, I'm very hard-headed and I just wanted to keep working on issues that seemed impossible. So I got into education justice work about six years ago and I met Ms. Paulette and Ms. Pam Harbin. um, And we've kind of hit the ground running since. Uh, Mm -hmm. Working on multiple issues around the school to prison pipeline. You know, how do we implement sustainable community schools? How are we talking about, you know, racism and racial bias in -hmm. our schools? And also making sure that kids are able to get, you know, their full education, however they show up. I'm absolutely honored and privileged to be able to work alongside of these gangster women that are fearless and just able to persevere through some of the hardest times in people's lives. So that's who I am. That's what I do. And uh, that's where we are. Thank you so much. And again, it's an honor to have all three of you all on the show this evening. So let's jump right into it. You know, a brother taught me this a long time ago, and it's it's stuck with me when I learned about the Haitian Revolution. And that's like one of my favorite stories in history. 
how poor Africans who of course were enslaved in the West Indies, some of the most brutal slavery on the planet, rose up and defeated Napoleon Bonaparte, the Spaniards, and the British, three of the strongest armies in the world. And the only time that a slave insurrection resulted in the birth of a brand new nation. What really struck me about that story was that the work that the slave industry did to make sure that other captives, I don't call our ancestors slaves, they were captives, that other captives to make sure that they didn't know about the Haitian Revolution. There was a lot of work done to make sure that the news of that did not travel to other plantations as our ancestors were rebelling all over the United States. So like something like this would inspire and energize. And, and it, t- talk, it talks about the power of inspiration. The reason I'm bringing that up is because as we talk about you all's work, I want to say to everybody that to me, one of the most powerful places where education organizing is happening in the United States is Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. You know, it's an old saying, game recognize game. And when you see women, our people, organizing and not winning every fight, but winning their share of fights. And where it's no longer David versus Goliath, it's a fight. I think we have to lift that work up so because there are many lessons that can be learned from it. So we're not going to act like the slave industry. We're not going to let them do that to us. We're going to share you all's story today. So why don't you all talk about, and any of you could jump in, just share one of your most memorable victories as a member of 1PA. Ms. Paulette, I'm going to start with just getting that Solutions, not suspensions, data information. We were able to get a solutions, not suspension data information that shows the disproportionality of Black American male students with IEPs mm-hmm. who were being suspended at tremendous rates. This is across all states. So this is not just happening here, but we were able to produce the actual documentation that we have. And the funny thing about it is that our information was being used in our Pitt College, our college that is really prestige. So they actually took our information and put it inside of some of their stuff. We had enough information in there that Pitt University mm-hmm. was able to utilize some of that in some of their School of Social Work documentation. Mm-hmm. So we struck a chord there. Being able to have a conversation with the principals and the teachers and the superintendents that mm-hmm. are delegated to different schools and letting them know that you can't keep on suspending children K through second grade based on children's behavior and minor infractions, causing them to go home and miss tons of times of just educational resource. And this is happening through fifth grade. We understand that if a child can't read by the time of third grade, then some lawmakers choose to to make prisons based on that. And then we're dealing with the fact that these babies are not given the resources necessary for them to meet the standard. And then you want to attack them with childlike behavior and suspend them on top of that. And then a child who may have an exceptionality who has an IEP, Mm -hmm. you're adding insult to injury. So that child is not getting any of the services and then sent home and then they feel that they're less than. So Mm -hmm. when we were able to produce that information along with showing the necessity of what's not being done in the school, I was happy for the victory. Now, we know that the work is not always complete because you know you have some people whose mindsets don't change. Mm -hmm. And you constantly have to go back and revisit the work to say, hey, you made a promise 
and you made a resolution. So it's now for you to fulfill what you had said was going to take place. So we're going back to revisit those places that we have celebrated as victory to make sure that the maintenance work is being done. That's so right. that's that's one of the celebrations that I have that our name is out there mm-hmm. and people recognize that, oh, they don't come to just play. They came to take ownership. Mm-hmm. And we want to make sure that when you see the people, because we're not looking to make ourselves shine, we're making the work shine. And yeah. we want to make sure that these parents who have the information are aware of what their voices can be can be in order for them to make sure they push forward the work to make sure that keeps on moving forward. So that's one thing that I celebrate. There's so much more that is there, but that one I know from the beginning, because that was a hard press because with Angel, Pam and myself and I'm just crying over making sure these folks get this stuff done correctly. And that's what I celebrate. That's what I lift up. Thank you, Ms. Paulette, for that. You said something that was really important. I want to make sure that people get it. So first, I want our audience to just take this in, that they were suspending black and brown primary age students at such a rate that the research showed it. And they had to organize a campaign to stop school systems from suspending black and brown babies, kindergarten through second grade. That lets you know that often when we are organizing, you're not dealing with the crisis of issues, you're dealing with the crisis of values. Because to look at a child that small and figure that the best thing to do is suspend them. Or we know in some cities, you see kindergartners being taken out of their classroom in handcuffs. So to treat our children that way speaks to a belief system that is waging war on us. But Ms. Paulette said something that was very important. She said that we want the work to shine, not for us to shine as individuals. And I think that's the huge difference between activism and organizing. As an activist, you pick your issue and you raise your voice to address that issue. As an organizer, you work with the people directly impacted so that you can build the power to address your issue. Uh, You know, when I make that point, people say, are you hating on activists? No, I'm not. But I think, you know, we have to have respect for the work we do to know the difference. And what we do is an artistic science. It is. There's creativity in it. You heard Susie talking about you know, how they want to make their work visually electric. That's creativity. So I want to, again, thank you, Ms. Paulette, for really providing us with a teachable moment. Is there anyone else that wants to add anything about your victory? I just want to, like, take a pause and really make sure folks understand, you know, when we talk about school push out and we talk about kids with disabilities being pushed out, Black kids in general, Like I I joke that I have a a 17 year old daughter who drives me crazy. But like when you're actually a parent who's in a moment where you don't understand, you know, the system in place where you're not forgiven for your kid making a mistake and your child is being faced with like criminal charges or Mm -hmm. a long term suspension or expulsion. Like it's Mm -hmm. a really, really dark, sad place. And so a lot of times we meet parents in that space and we're able to provide them hope and support and educate them on what their laws are and even sometimes get them legal support for free. Mm -hmm. Because nine times out of 10, that administration or, you know, those teachers will say, well, you know, this is the rules. This is the policy. It is what it is. No, Mm -hmm. no, no, no. There's more options into figuring out, you know, how to make sure that you're going to educate my baby. 
part of one of our wins is just really educating our parents, you know, making sure that they know their rights. We do these know your rights policy workshops twice a year, usually closer to back to school time. You know, through that, you know, we're able to, you know, make sure parents are armed with what they need when they're in those conversations. We understand it's a system issue, right? So like my child has been affected by push out. Uh, Miss Paulette's nephew has, you know, dealt with issues almost similar to push out. Miss Pam Harbin, her son struggles with autism. So when we walk into these spaces and we have the information we need, you do feel powerful and you do feel like you have a voice and some ownership of what happens to your kids in this education system. So it's just really important that, you know, we continue to educate parents, but we also have to let parents know that this is happening to your kid, my kid, and their kid. But until we change the system, you know, we're going to have to keep fighting these like small battles. And so that's the work that we're looking on when we think about policy and changing systems. Teach. So, I mean, I think that also connects to you all's work around uh, trying to make sure that you have a school board that reflects the values of equity in public education. Do you all want to say a little bit about the work that you all have done there and then also kind of the work that's coming up? We speak about Pam Harbin Mm -hmm. and Pam Harbin, she is still co-founder of Education Rights Network and Uh she stepped to the side for a little bit because she is now throwing her hat into the ring to become a school board member for our our district. So mm-hmm. we're in the process of is getting her campaign moving forward. Pam brings to the table the heart of those individuals who are underserved. Mm-hmm. And our school board, I can say, paying attention to it for the past six to seven years. When I got my nephew by way of court order mm-hmm. and being a child who was special needs, and like Angel had shared, I didn't know a lot of stuff that it was necessary for a student with exceptionalities to get the services that they needed. I came in contact with Pam Harbin and how I met her is through our local task force, which is the right to education for students with exceptionalities. Mm-hmm. And that was a state mandated organization that 12 parents 40 years ago said, hey, our children have the right to learn mm-hmm. and you're going to make this thing happen. So the state of Pennsylvania was sued by these 12 parents, which now the state task force and the local task force now exists because of that. Mm. So Pam was the co-chair at the time, and she was sharing what can be done with students with exceptionalities. And learning what is necessary for a student with exceptionality gave you, the, like Angel said, the strength to do what is necessary to really, mama, I'm going to knock you out. So as you learn more and more of this information, you became more empowered. Mm-hmm. So with Pam having that, those multiple talents and multiple venues of understanding, it allowed us to say, hey, we can move forward in a lot of things because parents with students with exceptionalities and special needs, that was necessary, the tools that are necessary. Mm-hmm. So she's being added to the school board when she gets elected, because we got to go through a whole process out there to get her elected. Mm-hmm. The school board that we have now, they pretty much know the heart. Even though we have a fight and convince them sometimes to certain things, but they're willing to listen. They're not a mayoral elected board. They are democratically elected. So you, you all so, have also I don't want to cut you off, Mama Paulette, but I just want to I want to insert, but you all have also 
impacted many of them being on the board. Is that accurate? I'd say when we, you ask what our biggest wins, the two things that come to my mind are how influential we've been in installing and influencing the local mm-hmm. school board. So that mm-hmm. means we actually helped deep participation in running some of the campaigns or supporting some of the campaigns to change out old guard school mm-hmm. board members that were not protecting the most vulnerable students. Just and yes. we went further than that. And even ones that had not been, you know, installed by us or uh, lifted by us to be in those seats, we engaged so deeply with them, whether that was getting 60 parents and, and grandparents and community members to show up and testify, whether mm-hmm. that was through letters and all kinds of public engagement, including some public pressure mm-hmm. by moving their opinions, by changing their mind. And so we have had a big change there. The other thing I think is a huge win of ours, which again, kind of going back to what you said, G2, about whether we're actually the authors of or the leaders and owners of these processes or whether we're kind of playing defense. I think where we don't play defense is community schools. The policy that we were able to be passed a few years ago and pilot here and we're still working on, it is a place where we become the authors of what our schools are, how they become mm-hmm. hubs of mm-hmm. wraparound services, whole child, whole family connection centers, and where we change that conversation and start reimagining what our public mm-hmm. schools are. As more people to hear the lesson in this, that one PA understood that in order to move policies locally that are in the best interest of our children, they had to have real democracy at the school board level. So they had to make sure that there were people sitting on the school board who are in line with the values of parents, community, young people, and equity as opposed to punitive education policies. And I don't want us to lose the fact, and I mean, I think Angel, you know, kind of went deeper with this piece. As organizers, what we are up against, I think that if we did a podcast on when have you felt hate from the system as you've done this work, it could be a whole series. because. What we are dealing with, family, is the disease called white supremacy, reflected through racism. And it is not an opinion. You know, white supremacy is not about some people carrying tiki torches talking about Jews will not replace us. Is that white supremacy? Yes. But to me, that's like the malt liquor of white supremacy. White supremacy is creating systems that automatically say that you are less. It's not an opinion. You can't escape it. It's everywhere. So whether you're dealing with housing, food production and delivery, education, criminal justice, religion, any type of institution you could think about, it has been infected by white supremacy. And so our fight is often, I think, to create these spaces where we can begin to reimagine ourselves, to reimagine what our possibilities are, to take off the yoke of low expectations that white supremacy burdens us with and be able to envision and see ourselves differently. I mean, I'm moved as I listen to you all talk as women that are saying that you are leaders in this fight because in the society we live in, still to this day, women are supposed to somehow be less capable than men. Men are supposed to be the leadership, but There's a lesson that I think we all have to understand. And as a man that grows up in Western culture, I struggle with it. So I'm not trying to front, right? I struggle with it every day. Leadership has nothing to do with gender. It has everything to do with spirit. And I've known some Negroes that were males, and I've known some Negroes that was females. So I think (laughs) it's really important that you all get the credit that you do 
but that we also put this in the proper framework. They had to wage a campaign to stop people who were looking at their children through a lens of hatred and saying, we're going to suspend them. We're going to arrest them. Not embracing these babies as really our future, as our hopes and our dreams, but targeting them. And so that's the work that we have to deal with. And so it's really important that we create these spaces where we can begin to reimagine ourselves. We can begin to see each other through our own eyes as opposed to the eyes of our oppressor. But I do have another question, and that is, right now, what is one of the biggest threats to equity in public education that you all are dealing with? I heard some talk about charter boards and things of that nature, and I really think I'd like to hear you all expand on that a little bit. When we think about public education and all of the kind of holes in the areas where our kids are not receiving what they need to learn every day. And we think about the charter industry and actually how much money, you know, we spend on a a separate education system that doesn't necessarily, you know, take kids with special needs or disabilities. That definitely is not transparent or accountable. You know, that is definitely not, you know, supportive of making sure that we are resources and our teachers to have what they need. Mm-hmm. So when we think about the charter industry in Pittsburgh, Last year, we spent $86 million on Mm. charter schools in the city. So Mm. when we talk about sustainable community schools, we could buy a lot with $86 million. And so what happens in Pennsylvania is we do have a state charter appeal board, which is located in the capital in Harrisburg. And so they actually have the full power and authority to override local school board decisions around charter school applications. Andrew, stop right there. Did you all hear that? They have these charter boards in states around the country where the school privatization movement has bought so much elected official support that they have these charter boards that can override the decision of the local school board. I don't want y'all to miss that point. I'm sorry, sister. Continue. That's super problematic, especially when we have nine democratically elected school board leaders in our city that have to campaign, that have to manage budgets, even actually larger than the operating budget of the city of Pittsburgh, um, Mm -hmm. who make lots of decisions around development and the future of our schools. So it is super disrespectful when you have five folks in the middle of the state that actually can roll up out of bed and like be in whatever mood they're in and say, oh, you know what? I'm going to go against what that local school board says, and I'm going to go ahead and approve that charter. You know, we have lots of charter schools applying to the district. And because of the charter appeal board, you know, they actually kind of joke about the fact that they can, you know, apply to the school district, get denied. And they're like, oh, don't worry about that. We'll just go to the charter appeal board and get what we need. That's right. So the other thing that you must know is that our current charter appeal board, which Mm -hmm. consists of five people. Mm-hmm. were appointed by Governor Corbett. And mm-hmm. Governor Corbett was the governor of Pennsylvania six years ago. So all of these people that are on this charter appeal board were from a Republican governor, and mm-hmm. they're all termed out. Their terms expired like five years ago. Five whole people in the state are making all of these decisions about stripping away resources um, from our public schools yeah. to put into the privatization system. So Um, It's problematic. And, you know, we are actually, I think, for the first time in the history of Pennsylvania, joining up with small towns like Bethlehem, 
joining up with Philadelphia, joining up with parents from Erie, Pennsylvania, to say that we actually have to stop this hemorrhaging of charter schools and our local communities. And like this charter appeal process is no longer working for us. So I appreciate that, Angel. That's a, a really a great segue to my next question. You all are a statewide network. What are the advantages and the challenges of organizing across the state? You know, there's a lot more power when we work with other communities across the state. Mm-hmm. Um, when we think about statewide policies, I know that, you know, folks are dealing with education crisis everywhere in the state of Pennsylvania. It's interesting because the politics lean a little different across the state. So Pittsburgh, we're kind of far away from the state capital. And then you have Philadelphia, which is the largest city in Pennsylvania that is very close to the state capital. You know, if we look at what's happened in Philadelphia around education, you know, they were taken over by the state. You know, now they have a a mayor appointed school board, but they are very, very heavy in the charter industry. We often say like, listen, you know, we don't want to be like Philadelphia. We don't want to have majority charter schools. You know, we don't want to have our kids in some of the worst schools in the country. So, I mean, there's definitely a lot of challenges, especially when you're talking to black folks around the charter industry, because you do have a large amount of black kids that are in charter schools. You know, the education part of that and making folks think about how it affects us in the larger system and how we need to stick together, and make sure all of our kids get what they need definitely is a challenge uh, across the state. I could add to that a little bit to touch on how we are you know, two organizations. There's Education Rights Network that is Mm -hmm. focused on education. Mm -hmm. And then there is One Pennsylvania, which is a more of a a broad umbrella organization and includes different campaigns, different work. I think this actually reflects some of the strength of us being connected as two organizations Mm -hmm. intertwined, but also how we are multi-issue. So we Mm -hmm. work on environmental justice. We work Mm -hmm. on economic justice, raising the minimum wage, Mm -hmm. looking at the whole person Mm -hmm. and our communities at the largest scale. And that Mm -hmm. gives us chance to build partnerships even beyond our state, even nationally. And I think this is the space where we can see the strength of us going statewide is the strength of us having education, economic, and environmental justice all in the same house. Mm -hmm. Um, It's the same thing. It means that we can grow our power and we can see how does environmental justice touch education. We can Mm -hmm. say, how does economic justice, raising the wage and unions um, and Mm -hmm. workers' rights, how does that connect to education? Mm -hmm. And we can do that conversation at the statewide level. I appreciate you all's answer because I think it's important to realize, so we talked about white supremacy a little bit and how it affects our basic quality of life institutions. And one of the things that happens to us, whether we are we are low income and we live in a neighborhood and we live in check to check or no check to maybe half a check or whatever we live in, you know, it's hard to look at a system when you are being absolutely victimized by a system. And so it's hard to see the connections between housing, education and gentrification and the push out of black people in American cities. It's difficult to see because often we're struggling with housing. We're struggling with maybe a decent school. You know, I ask that question because, you know, you hear people talk about working in coalitions all the time. And I think it's important for folks to understand, first, what a coalition is. That a coalition is really a temporary arrangement where people come together around an issue that they want to organize around. And so... A coalition is is not really an alignment of values. It's an alignment of interests. And so people come together and say, we're going to work together around this issue. 
We want to raise the minimum wage. We want a stop sign at the corner of the street or wherever the coalition comes together around. And so often you can work with people in a coalition that you may not see eye to eye on a bunch of issues. But if you see the eye to eye on the fact that we want to stop charter, then you can get down with that coalition. And then I think there's a step forward from a coalition called an alliance. And an alliance is when there is an alignment of values where people come together around a shared belief. We want to fight for equity in public education. That crosses a myriad of issues. That deals with school to prison pipeline. It deals with school closings. That deals with testing and a number of issues. And then a step after an alliance, you know, is movement. And movement is when you are actually imagining a new nation. We say that a movement is like a baby nation in its infant stages. It has its own set of values. It is protracted. It redefines the people. So if you remember in Memphis, the garbage workers in the civil rights movement had to sign on and said, I am a man. That was a redefining of who we were, as opposed to saying, no, I'm not a nigga. I'm not a boy. I am a man. You know, it's important, again, to just for us, for the listeners. And for, I mean, and it's something that I reflect on and I study all the time, because when we're in the middle of it, it's kind of hard to see it. So sometimes you got to step back and really reflect on what it is that you're building. So you all are talking about a statewide coalition. You're part of a national network called the Journey for Justice Alliance. And we are trying to build an education justice movement. As you all are teaching, you're just bringing this out of me and the work that you all are doing, because there aren't that many statewide real statewide networks around the country that are as developed as you all are. I would say in the education justice world, AQE in New York is also, you know, kicking butt at the statewide level. So again, mm-hmm. you all would be saluted for that. But I have one final question for you, sisters. You all have already said that you all are gangster women and, and, and you know, you all <laughs> bring your whole selves into the fight. You own the fight. So if you could describe one PA in three human qualities, what would those qualities be? Well, somebody else can describe the qualities because I'm not sure about that question. <laughs> However, I do want to reassure you of our gangsterism because Miss <laughs> Paulette and Big Giant Angel Gober and Susie South walking in the room, they say, damn, who invited them? I don't doubt you organize the gangster credentials. Now, I'm, I'm not a hater. I'm on y'all team. I'm on y'all side. I don't want no trouble. I want no trouble, all right? But, okay. But, I just have to let you know, people don't mess with us in this town when it comes to education. You ain't passing no policies. <laughs> you ain't running no school board races. You ain't opening up no charter schools because right. these women are not playing about their okay. babies. Okay. Well, go ahead. Anybody else want to take a stab at it? I believe that we are empathetic. We see the need and we do our best to make sure that when we're hearing that, that we make sure the person knows that we're going to wrap our arms around you. We're going to walk with you mm-hmm. through the process. We're not going to leave you hanging and we will check back in with you. Mm-hmm. And we want to know that you fully understand what you are capable of doing because like I shared before, we don't want just to be the one to create this work. We want this work to continue to move on. And we need the persons who are receiving this information have the qualities that we need that they need to keep it moving forward because mm-hmm. we, you don't want to build a structure. You want to build a, a movement and we want to make right. sure that it keeps on moving forward. Empathetic. Thank you so much. Miss Susie, what do you think? Uh, I'm going to say strategic 
defiant mm. and real love, baby. Real love. All right. Yeah, real love. Strategic, defiant, and real love. All right, Angel, I thought I saw you want to jump in it. Did you have something? She's passionate because when something goes bad or something goes good, the tears will flow. I don't care if she may be Amazon woman if she wants to, but when her heart, she's a whole heart person and she's passionate about what she does. So she's really Absolutely. passionate about it. Absolutely. Well, look, I wanted you all on the show because I have deep respect for the work that you all do. I was blessed a couple of years ago to actually come down to Pittsburgh and to facilitate a uh, candidates forum. And, and I was really amazed at just the power of your organization and those types of things. When you are an organizer and you're in the work of movement building, inspire you. It moves you, you know, to your core and it gives you hope. And so I want to just thank you all for that. And I want to leave our audience. I asked them this question because a brother taught me this lesson that I want to share with you all before we close. He said there are four qualities of a great organizer. The first one is humility. Always remember that there was a time when you were not awake. And I always reflect on that in my own personal life, that there was a time that I was not Brother G2. I was standing out in Ida B. Wells housing projects lost. And um, understanding that you are not better than anybody else, that's important. Listening. The greatest quality of an organizer is the ability to listen to your people. Not to assume mm-hmm. what the issues are, but to hear what the issues are. Ella mm-hmm. Baker used to tell people during Freedom Summer, and many people like Bob Moses tell this story that she made college students and college graduates that were coming down to work in Freedom Summer, she made them study at the feet of sharecroppers. She said, you go to them and you don't talk to them about what you know. You listen and you watch them. And the lesson uh-huh. was... How could men and women who are living in an environment where they could be killed for looking a white person in the eye, literally, still have the strength of character to straighten out their back and demand the right to vote? And her thing was, you have nothing to teach them. You have everything to learn. So listening to your people is is critical. And when you all talked about empathy, you made me think of the third principle, which is validation. That when your people come to you with a problem or the issue, don't tell them what their issue is validate their experiences because who when we say they doing this to me because i'm black who listens to us who says no brother you're right and this is what we can do about it right and so it's important to validate people because it's it's important that our lens is validated that we are not told that our lens is distorted that we have the wrong prescription no we have the right and we know what we're experiencing and the last one is consistency the last one is consistency. We cannot be sometime warriors. We cannot be fair weather warriors. We have to do this work when we don't want to do this work. We have to do this work when we want to do something completely different. And that's important because that consistency will build trust. Trust is pivotal because we get shafted so much that it's important that our folks see us as different. Oh, no, these ain't no fair weather people. They here. You know, Miss Angel and them, Miss Paulette and them, they really love our babies. They here. That being said, I really want to thank you, sisters, for joining us and for joining our show. We appreciate you. Thank you. All right. So much respect and love for you, G2. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. So, look, now we have come to the end of another episode of On the Ground. And the theme of this show is Mama Said Knock You Out. This song is done by LL Cool J, better known as Ladies Love Cool James. 
He first mm-hmm. popped on the scene as a 15-year-old saying, you know, I can't live without my radio. He is still in the game after some 30-some-odd years. This brother has been not only a top-charting star, but he is now, you know, a bona fide movie star. And you remember LL Cool J battled some of the greatest MCs. He battled Ice-T. He battled Cool Mo D, even though I think Cool Mo D beat him. But he battled Cool Mo D. <laughs> and he even battled MC Hammer. Now, how is MC Hammer in the battle? I don't, I don't know. I don't know about that. But anyway. <laughs> and he had a song called Mama Said Knock You Out. And that song talked about the fact that, hey, no matter what you do, I'm representing my people. And my mama said, don't come home unless I'm coming home with that person's butt whip. So our sisters in Pittsburgh, they kick butt. And this song is dedicated to them. Mama said, knock you out for LL Cool J. Thank you all for joining us. Tutao Nana, peace. In a minute, I'll holla. Thank you for being on the ground. <laughs>